Welcome to the Ides of Macro, where we discuss investing, trading, and big picture frameworks, all through the lens of global macroeconomics. This is the bit where I remind you that none of this podcast is investment advice. In fact, this is purely for entertainment and educational purposes. But please do hit that subscribe button if you want the latest videos from Lycan as soon as they're available. And with that, let's get on with the podcast. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Lycan's podcast, The Ides of Macro. And this week, it's my absolute pleasure to have Tony Greer on uh, from, uh, from many times we've seen him before on things like Real Vision. I've spoken to him many times over the years. Always fascinating. He's got a fantastic background in many facets, many areas. Does a lot of trading, does a lot of writing. Uh, Tony, welcome. Raj, thanks for having me on your new venture, man. Pleasure to be here. And, uh, and just for those who don't know, because I know you've, you've been on quite a few areas, you've got effectively your own sort of channel as well, but could you give a bit of a, a sort of color? So for those who don't know you, you know, where you've come from, where you started in this business and, and how you sort of evolve into where you are now? Yeah, sure. Uh, you know, I'll try to give you a brief arc of my career since I graduated from Cornell University in 1990. I knew I wanted to get a job on a trading desk and I started at um, Sumitomo Bank on the 107th floor of the World Trade Center, which was a really cool experience. But that was my first leg onto an FX desk. Um, and I started there as an assistant to the dollar uh, to the forwards trader. I worked at UBS as a spot dealer for two years. And from there, um, I got recruited by Goldman Sachs to join their J. Aaron commodity trading desk. Um, spent six years of my trading life there and really learned everything I ever learned about managing risk and, and the rigor of having a trading operation. Um, and after the firm went public in 1999, I took a chance on myself and tried to start my own trading venture, um, which was kind of an 18-month 18 uh, wash, kind of after all was said and done. And so I kind of dug into my Rolodex and saw where I wanted to approach Wall Street next. And I learned that I had a lot of contacts that were equity execution guys. And so I kind of built a business as an equity salesman that was very much a natural resources based salesman with my experience at um, Goldman Sachs trading gold and running the Goldman Sachs commodities index for different periods while I was there. So I started writing a note to the first client that I had who was out on the West Coast every morning. And just literally organically, my daily note grew to over a thousand subscribers on the street. And um, that's when I was kind of building up my sales and trading business, um, the bulk of which I spent at Dalman Rose, which is a great, great maverick sales and trading investment bank slash broker dealer that I'd still be sitting at probably if uh, electronic trading didn't break into the world, you know. So um, to make the final lap short, Raj, I played a little bit what I call pickup basketball with my career after Dalman Rose got bought and um, the members of the trading desk were kind of dispersed across the street. And I worked for three different shops for three years and was miserable working for different shops and different managers and pulling my clients around. And that's not really the kind of person or professional I wanted to be at all. So I was really uncomfortable. And you know, with the inspiration of people like Jared Dillian, I got the idea that I could try to write my own newsletter. And I had enough experienced mentors in my sort of uh, wheelhouse in my distribution list that gave me the confidence to say, you know, your note can stand on its own. You understand markets. You write well. 
And so I launched the Morning Navigator on um, the day before Election Day in 2016 with the idea that Donald Trump was going to win the election and the world was going to change really dramatically in the wake of that. And here we are, you know, and so I'm seventh cool. year. Yeah, yeah sorry. Nice seventh year of writing the navigator and my consulting business and kind of just bucking away every day, man. Brilliant. And um, just so people um, understand your, not so much your methodology, but I mean, one of the most important things here, and it's nearly where everyone ends up disagreeing is actually it's all about time frame. Can you talk about your time frame? Because I'm very conscious that we're recording this a couple of hours before the Fed, which is always a potential banana skin. Where, what is the sort of time frame that you generally think about and discuss so we can understand that before we get into the sort of the real crux of it? Yeah, Raj, my, you know, I, I try to hit pressure points in markets when I think they're going to move, right? So I'm not really sitting around in things for a long time. I'm generally saying, okay, there's something that's going to make this happen. Let's go with this move. And, you know, starting with putting a position on, if I've got the right risk reward, I'm usually in it for, you know, two days to two weeks. That's what I start off as. So I'm really very much a short-term trader. However, on occasion, you buy things right and get things right and you ride a trend and my entire modus operandi since you know understanding how to prop trade for yourself is that I'm a trailing stop loss guy so kind of I'm I that's really one of the one of the very few ways that I will exit a long position is when it's going my way for a period of time and then eventually it breaks a moving average or a trend line and I decide that that trend is broken and it takes me out so sometimes my point is, Raj, that sometimes, um, you know, you'll get in something planning on being in for two weeks and maybe that trend lasts for two months, right? And it turns into something that you were looking for to slap a single or a double and it turns into a, you know, a, a triple or a home run for you every so often. So that's kind of why this time frame changes a little bit. It's flexible. And, and I guess that's the key, one of the key elements, because, you know, we often hear, particularly when you look at Twitter, there's, um, there's these narratives, tribal narratives that people get beholden to. But it sounds like you, you probably have narratives, but you're not going to kind of get wedded to one because if it changes, you change. Yeah. Yeah. I, you know, I, I pride myself on, on um, you know, really being a, a short term kind of hit and run trader that understands what's going on on an intraday basis. And, and that's where I really like to spend my time with risk on. I love to go home flat. You know, I'm not always able to or that always doesn't work out as the plan. But that's the goal a lot of the time, because I like to show up into volatile situations with fresh powder, you know, and be able to, you know, potentially have no positions on when you have a VIX blow up into the 20s. Right. And so rather than getting stopped out on the way down and saying, OK, I lost money there. I've got to cut this. I've got to get out. You can kind of sit there and stare at the screens with an open mind you know, and, and, and really pray with an E rather than pray with an A, right? You can see what the layout of the market is. You can see where the damage is. You can see what's leading. You can see what's lagging. You can see what's holding up while the market's breaking down and figure out where you want to place your bets. That's, that's very much how I operate. And, and talking, you know, obviously, you know, navigate, navigative kind of key element to all of this. Um, you know, we want to, I'd love to get some ideas from you, as I say, on sort of medium term, because what I find fascinating right now is, is that there are plausible arguments to say that we've had a recession already. There's plausible arguments to say we might be in for reflation. There's plausible arguments to say that there's a, a whopping great recession on the near horizon. So, you know, there's a lot of conflicting narratives out there, and they may all be right. Yeah. So in this environment, what, what are you sort of thinking? So how are you navigating this multiple narrative so stories, which you know, may play out? But again, it talks about time frame. 
Yeah, Raj, that's a great that's a great way to put a question to traders right now because there's so much cross current as to what could happen on the economic you know, horizon that it's for me who I am not a good economist, it's impossible to tell. Right. So I'm very I sort of shudder at the idea of having to figure out the economy. I'm much better at seeing the data, seeing the market reaction and kind of understanding, you know, maybe which way the weak side is in markets and things like that. You know, and so I have kind of I have noise cancellation policies on certain market narratives where I will mute the word on Twitter if I have to. Um, you know, to the point, for example, where I feel like the recession talk is is uh, gets a little bit burdensome for me because number one, I don't really believe that we're hell bent on diving into a recession, and number two, if we do, that doesn't necessarily mean that the S and P is going to crater, right? It all depends on how the Fed pivots and how they set up expectations into a pivot and and how they roll with the changes of the changing data. So. You know, I try not to get too caught up in this is going to happen, so that is next, right? And that that's part of the navigation process. I think the other part that's really important is to have a stance on on you know, so call it on the S and P or the energy market. And and broadly speaking, like I wake up bullish. You know, I, I wake up bullish the stock market. I wake up looking to buy into bullish stories. You know, and 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 buy into bullish trends, and that's really where I figure out how to make my money. You know, I always um, I was teaching a trading class for a little while that kind of came about in my professional business, and I had a bunch of guys that wanted some kind of you know lessons type of things. And one of the first things that I taught them was, you know, your best way of making money in this market is to find something that's trading from the bottom left hand corner of your screen to the top right corner of your screen and pick points in the middle that you can exploit, right? Buy the dips and sell the rallies. And I've actually changed people's viewpoints on trading quite a bit like that because it simples the game for you. You know, it makes things a lot easier. But to get to the, to, to I guess you want to get some views on the actual markets, right, Raj? I think, um, you know, the energy markets have just come alive and you can kind of pick one, um, you know, whether it's oil or uranium or natural gas right now, you know, it's kind of uh, the oil market is very much in play. I think that that's a trade that I'm, I've been pursuing and I'm going to continue to pursue. Um, it finally feels like the SPR sales by the Biden administration have either become politically unpalatable or winding to an end. And it feels like the OPEC plus has room and reason to keep the output cuts going. And I think that they want a higher price into the Saudi Aramco secondary that could be happening. And it looks like they've got, you know, the, the ball rolling in their direction, but I'll let you guide the conversation from here. I don't want to just keep talking into some direction. No, that's great because actually this is very much the, the sort of topic that kind of want to start off with, because obviously, you know, there is one of the key narratives of all of this is, is, you know, there's a, we, we just talked about various scenarios, but it's become sort of binary, as you were just alluding to, recession or no recession, or either bull, bull market or bear market. But because of exactly what you were saying there, notwithstanding that obviously, you know, your, your navigator piece, I think on the 1st of September was bullish energy. We've got it, I think, to 93 on WTI. Yes, we could have a pullback. I think you mentioned it in one of your very recent interviews. So we're not going to try and tick that data. But in a world where everyone's talking about things like CPI and then policy response, and we all talk about, well, you know, there's, there's energy is only a small bit, but it has bigger influences and shelters coming down. But shelters coming with a lag. And in the meantime, CPI is moving up and generally, or, or, sorry, 
energy is moving up and CPI tends to follow WTI in the short term. It feels like we could be, you know, we talk about recession, etc., but potentially we could get a reflation rotation for maybe a few weeks or a few months before we get really close to a, a true recession. Do you think there's a risk that given positioning, and I think, you know, hedge funds missed a lot of this, probably sitting on cash, etc., that we could get one of those periods where actually we've got this transition window where actually things could look like whether it's reflation, inflation, or a bit of both. People might go, you know what, I need some reflation trades on. I like that idea, Raj, and I love that you can present that so clearly because it seems like uh, the consensus is very much the opposite way, right? The consensus is just like, you know, economy bad, reflation, uh, you know, deflation coming, you know, things like that. And I like that you see a runway for a reflation trade as coincidentally, you know, the Bloomberg Commodities Index finally after like a year long downtrend finally stabilizes and starts attacking moving averages on the upside and at least looks like it wants to start to make a turn. Oil is clearly leading the way for that move right now, right? We've got inventories across liquids from crude oil to diesel fuel to gasoline either pushing or at their five-year average lows, right? So they're, excuse me, bottom of the five-year average ranges. So that makes for a necessarily tight market. Um, What's interesting about the oil market is it's been taking turns sort of passing the baton to the tighter part of the complex, whereas like the last run up, like the first run up to 130 before the, you know, Russia-Ukraine conflict, that was all a diesel driven run because diesel was tight. And then we came in the next year and we had a little bit of run in tight gasoline. And now we've got tighter crude oil. So it's just interesting to see that that backwardation remains in the oil market with inventories at their lows. It just tells the story that to me, you know, there's a little bit of that supply shortage that's a concern for traders that are trying to keep supplies um you know, at, at bay or, or in order wherever they need to. So the oil trade looks great. It just ran from 70, you know, the lows of around 77 of this last move to, I call it a high of 93. That coincided and went right through the moving averages on the way to this peak. That coincides to me with the double top that we saw back in October, November of last year. And that's just a logical place for a straight line trade to, to, to stop. Right. You'll you'll see some technicians step in and take a chance selling here. And then next thing you know, that'll be the short term top until you'll see the moving averages rise up to meet the price again. And we'll start to have that, you know, upward momentum, because I feel like that the chant that after such a long consolidation period that we just saw where we had SPR sale announcement into output cuts by OPEC and the price wasn't going anywhere because that SPR seller was really regular. Once the Biden stopped selling the SPR for the 2022 elections, prices were able to stabilize and rise through there. So what I think what's going to happen is if we fail technically here at 93, we pull back into the moving averages, which could be as low as 83 in WTI. Nothing would shock me. But all this builds into the reflation trade that you're talking about, right? We're going to have the CPI data is going to trail and, you know, obviously reflect this run up in oil prices and diesel prices, certainly. And natural gas is suddenly upset, not out of its range, but up 7 8% in the last week. The uranium trade is totally broken out, right? Spot uranium is now kind of a chase by the utilities to keep their, um, their, their baseload power generation going with nuclear. And they're not as phased by the price. They've got to keep the generators going so they continue to buy uranium. 
the the sector is getting you know the URA the minor sector is getting powered by that it's been a beautiful pennant breakout and that's a really tradable idea right you can do your own homework pick your own spots but you know these are the energy trades that are really interesting to me and they I feel like they're just getting started to your point about maybe there's room for a reflation trade with energy coming out of such a long consolidation period like I like to really go with a move that's as robust as the one we just saw so I do believe that, you know, alongside you, that we are in for a little bit of an energy-driven reflation trade right now. And and one of the things that's sort of important about that is that um, it may be that this is inflationary or, you know, supply-demand kind of constraints within that sector. But if the market thinks there's reflation, even if reflation, true reflation as in true growth, doesn't materialize in six months' time, it doesn't matter if the market prices it. And and you'll recall, and I recall, um, midst of the 2008 recession, middle of the year, oil went to nearly 150, and everyone thought the recession was over and went for growth again. And that was two months before everything collapsed. The point being is that the market thinks it, the market prices it, whether it's going to happen is a different matter. And maybe right. we get one of those scenarios again. Yeah, that's what's so fascinating. It also exposes like the weak side of positions, right? Like there's nobody in the energy markets. Open interest is very low. There's been fun flows out of the stocks all year. And next thing you know, a bull story creeps up and nobody's in it. And to your point, that's when you get the you know portfolio managers start buying into the story and saying, yeah, let's have this trade you know, and be in it. Next thing you know, two months later, guys are still playing hot potato with the reflation trade, right? So you never know. And, and I think one, with all of that as well is that there's the um, this feeling that you know, yields are edging high with this. And as long as they grind rather than surge, I think the market can deal with it. And what I found really fascinating this year is that or less, last year, yields surged higher. The equity market sold off. It was a recalibration, P's, whatever, multiple contraction. But this year, almost on the nose at the BTFP, that backstop of the banks kicked in, you saw yields moving back up again, but bond volatility coming down. So this time, last year, bond vol went up with yields going up, equities down. It's almost as if the backstop from the Fed has created an environment where maybe we can get high yields. And if bond volatility remains low, and obviously for hedge funds, multi-asset firms, if equity vol is low, bond vol is low, actually you can lever up. And if these guys have missed performance this year, which they have and they've got cash on the, on the sidelines, yes, they get the 5% in, in bonds, but they may be all going, oh God, if this thing kicks off into year end, we're going to chase it because we can lever up because yeah, yields are higher, but vol's low. And maybe volatility here in the bond market is actually more important than absolute level of yield as long as they're not surging. Brilliant point, Raj. Brilliant point. Rate of change is everything, right? Rate of change is everything. If bond markets trickle lower and the economy shows signs that at least we're not nosediving into a recession, then usually the market can bear higher S&P prices, right? I mean, we've seen that trade before. We saw that in 1617. We saw that in 1112 where you've got yields ratcheting higher, low bond volatility with no dislocations, right? Based on some kind of a crazy, you know, that's kind of my fear. Whenever I wake up bullish stocks, I say, okay, what's my downside? The downside is a huge inflation surprise that just knocks the crap out of the bond market all in one morning. Rates dislocate higher. And guess what? Your S&P positions are all going to be down 10 bit to 20% on the opening, right? So that that's your kind of disaster scenario in my head. But I like your point that if this is done slowly, right, I feel right now that the bond market has got a great back and forth of bulls and bears. 
you know, it's not like we're just trading lower and everybody's bearish. No, people are like, dude, this is going to reverse. I see lower rates on the horizon. And my point is just that when you've got neutrality there, that's when markets can trend. And if they can trend, like you say, without having a big blow up and they can stoically trend, you know, in an orderly fashion, man, that's a recipe for reflation, you know, hard asset prices higher, S&P higher, you know, VIX buried in the teens for, for weeks waiting for that big blow up. And unless, you know, you get the bomb in the in the economy, um, you know, where it's proving that we're seeing a recession, maybe that trend just keeps going and you've got a lot of FOMO into the last couple of co- uh, months of the year. Man, that that's a highly likely scenario, in my opinion. Yeah, I mean, uh, we, we've sort of seen with you know, when you get the sort of the negative environment, as you say. So one thing is that inflation goes bonkers. But, you know, as everyone keeps on saying, oh, shelter, 34 percent of CPI is coming down. So maybe they can offset the fact that, yes, yeah, CPI will be sticky because of energy and energy passing through to food, et cetera. But then you've got the opposite. So it might mean that we're just basing CPI well above the Fed's target. So that's kind of an okay. But the other point that we haven't had yet is, yes, we're starting to see unemployment tick up, but it needs to absolutely surge because every single recession, it surges. And that still feels like even with the best will in the world, it's many months away. So probably a 2024 story if it happens. Again, it gives this window where... We could get wrong-footed. You know, people could be wrong-footed if we've got low volatility across the board that stays low and stable and we've got cash in the sidelines. Again, it might not be a base case. It might not be, you know, it might not be a bullish economy view. Just the markets can do it. Yeah. You know, my, my I, what I try to look to for answers to some of those questions, Raj, because I can't answer the economy questions, the bond curve, right? Look at the treasury curve. Call it twos, tens. You know, we're yeah. currently, you know, I feel like the reason that the S&P isn't breaking down, calling it the last two to three weeks since we backed off the highs, you know, I'm, I'm, I've been shocked that it's not breaking down with, you know, a more serious VIX spike or a, a serious tick index low where everybody's whacking bids and the tick index trades like minus 1600 or something like that. But we haven't seen that because the curve is stable as a rock. Right now, that curve has been a 10 basis point range. And, you know, I stare at it waiting for it to move. Usually, you know, if there's a sudden move in the curve, you're definitely going to see a spike in the VIX and probably a little bit of a risk off trade in various different forms. Um, and when it's nosediving, it, it feels like the market is kind of expects a little bit lower rates. You usually see um, bond prices pick up a little bit and yields fall a little. And that's an OK scenario for the stock market once again. You know, so that the curve... I've been using as not a fail safe, but at least something that gives me a little clue of the direction of that bond volatility, what might happen next, you know, where, where the shakeup is going to come from. Because a lot of times if that curve starts steepening back towards flat, there's going to be a lot of volatility associated with a move like that. In some ways, it may even actually kind of, you know, this sequencing might mean we go unexpectedly the other way. And what I mean by that is that and here we are where, Let's say we're in this transition window where we've got low unemployment, um, still relatively, you know, we've got falling um, inflation. But even even if CPI pretend got to zero, if you've got low unemployment and a rising equity market and GDP in positive territory, they're not cutting. If anything, they'll use all that as an opportunity to stay their course. And it may be that if we got the things you're talking about, we get sort of reflation trades, equities up, energy up, eventually yields moving up as well. It might mean that the Fed actually have to come in and go, you know what, guys? We're going to continue to raise rates because we spent 10 years being on the zero bound and whinging about it. Now we can actually raise rates. If we keep raising rates and equities go up and unemployment stays low. 
And why is this interesting is that in the 70s, the yield curve went much, much, much more negative into recessions because the Fed had to do exactly that, which was, oh, actually, you know, inflation looks good until you realize inflation's bad. That means it looks like it was growth until it becomes bad inflation. When it's bad inflation, they have to keep going. And maybe we're in that window where the next move is they have to do it again and then again, get the inversion deeper, and then we move into that kind of recessionary scenario. So again, that's that reflation trade first. Yep. Totally, to- totally possible. And if that if that sort of coincides with a, a real commodity, an actual commodity breakout, then, you know, you'll have the even even better recipe for it right there. And and I guess just you know, kind of thinking from your perspective there and just generally now, it, obviously, you've obviously got a framework, um, even though you have these sort of short term views. What do you think the Fed will do? Do you think the Fed is again, it's not really the, the um, it's not really an economics question. It's more. The function of the Fed. Do you think that they will sit here and ignoring what will be happening after we film this today, um, and our, but we'll have released this since then. But do you think that they will just hold their course, hold their course, and they either need to see a massive break in unemployment to reverse course, or if we get these things higher, you know, the Fed may be on a tightening course further from here? Yeah, I'm, put it this way, Raj. I'm still in the, in the camp that the inflationary scenario and the commodity prices are going to keep the Fed's hand to the fire to lean more hawkish than not. You know, and, and I can't I can't tell you exactly what they're going to do at every meeting. I don't really know, but I, I do lean the fact le- do lean towards the idea that I'm expecting them to have to remain fairly hawkish because of this inflation story that's not going away. You know, we just saw the last two monthly upticks in inflation since it backed off of the highs. It feels very much to me like when energy price is turning, gold prices at 1950 and comfortable, it feels like this could be a turn in the whole inflation headline inflation story, right? Where we could start seeing, you know, we had CPI at 2% flatline forever, or we couldn't get it to 2% forever. We saw the spike to 9% headline inflation or whatever, close enough. And now we pulled back halfway to, you know, 3%, 4%. It feels like we can hold here and rally. So, um, while that's going on in the background, you're seeing commodity prices perk up, and it just makes sense to me that the Fed is going to have to, until they see some kind of an end to the inflationary story on the horizon, lean towards tightening. And I'm not, you know, this is, you know, I'm not really, like I said, this kind of goes back to the economist thing, but I remember that we had two consecutive quarters of negative GDP growth during the Biden administration, right? That was that was a recession to me. The bond market has priced that as a recession ever since I was born. And in my opinion, one happened already, right? And maybe we're bouncing out of that. But what was wild was that the Biden administration came out and said, hey, we're generally, we're, we're not really going to call uh, two negative quarters of GDP growth necessarily a recession. And the market, people in the market was like, oh yeah, that's right. That wasn't a recession. But it's like, for, for our whole careers, two negative quarters of GDP growth, guess what? Like it or not, that's a recession, right? Yeah. So we printed one. The curve was forecasting that. The S&P was sitting down at 3,800 with the biggest negative sentiment bubble that the world has ever seen, right? And next thing you know, with that potentially what I call the recession in the rearview mirror, the S&P started ticking higher as that negative sentiment bubble burst. And here we are at 4,500. You know, so I just think I just find it funny how sometimes, you know, the, you know, the economic prognostications and the sentiment all work into that story. It's wild. Yeah. 
I mean, I think the one the one thing that needs to happen is is the that unemployment story because all recessions have come with massively surging yeah. unemployment. Now, obviously, it could be um, you know we could find that actually revisions when you know in twelve months' time the revisions could be that oh actually you know unemployment was four point five percent eighteen months ago, but. You know, that is the unemployment thing that really, I guess, defines those recessions. But what I think has been interesting is, and I think this is why actually, in, in many ways, a lot of people have been right, is that we've seen recessions in certain geographies and certain sectors. A bit like, remember, 2014, 15, which was this industrial and commodities recession, yeah. but it didn't hit the whole economy. We've seen that. We saw households getting hit with that first surge of inflation. We saw some of those small businesses getting hit. And it seems like we've had a recession a bit here, a bit there. We've not had a kind of a unifying recession in that sort of true kind of NBER sense that we have them. That's fair. That's fair. We haven't seen the 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 you know well may, you know what may have thrown the monkey in that and that works, Raj. And you can tell me is the is the lockdown, right? I mean that that was that massive you know monkey wrench in the economy that we had never seen before. You know we get we after we got through. We got through the physicality of the lockdown, and then we had to live through the data that was just like, oh, my God. Like, You know what I mean? Like, literally, yeah. like, there was no other way to look at it, but with both hands on your head, like, Jesus Christ, what is happening to the economy right now? Like, will it ever recover? And so I feel like that was kind of a big tremor that shook things up. And maybe that explains a little bit why we haven't had this sort of, you know, uh, box checkable recession where, okay, unemployment doses yeah. got it, you know, inf deflation got it, you know, um, slower manufacturing. Yes, of course, you know, where it's all very orderly because that was, I mean, that was just something unbelievable. And we had to live through that period of uh, what we call financial postmodernism, where you would come out with horrible employment data and the Fed was talking about nothing but easing and stocks were going straight up every day. Yeah. You know, so it was really, really I wild think, to to experience that too. I, I think that I think that's exactly it because you know we um and, and I said at the beginning of this year, fortunately, I said, look, I've got even less idea than normal because this is such a really hard environment, and and I said that because you know the fiscal the the, the whole thing of COVID and, and how it impacted supply chains and the you know supply demand imbalances, then the fiscal which put money into people's pockets which we hadn't really seen before, and then how attitudes to employment or being employed changed. Put all those together and, you know, we're still going to work these, we're still working our way through this. The BLS, you know, the, the Bureau of Labor Statistics is probably going to have to be doing revisions for the next decade to accommodate just the huge, huge moves that we saw. It's, I mean, I think you're right. I think that this is the problem is that we're all having is that we've seen such a shock to the system and the data, you know, you look at those charts and they, they were off the chart if anything could ever be off the chart. And three years on, we haven't worked our way through the, the obscenity of that data set that we had back then. That's right. That was something incredible. And there's, there's another, there's, there's another thing that I think that's on the economic front that, you know, I, I feel like the market picks up infl more inflation than the headline data suggests, you know, and, and, you know, and I just feel that way because, you know, the headline data hasn't been that dramatic yet here we are at the highs of the rate move across the board you know i mean across the curve however you like to call it you know one of the things i wonder if something that's not really talked about and i don't, we don't need to get political with it but there's definitely a border crisis here in the u.s there's definitely a migrant crisis in europe to some extent all of that is going to get financed by the west right that that's just more dependent we can just leave the conversation at that and just say Look at all these dependents that are likely going to be, 
you know, the the bill is going to be picked up by the U.S. Gov and the Treasury and or or the ECB or whoever it winds up being. But these are more dependents on the system, and that's inflationary. If the government is definitely going to foot the bill across healthcare, education, and transportation, and everything else for all of them, so. There's all kinds of little little pockets of you know stories that I read and I say wow wow isn't that massively inflationary and you're like yeah maybe that's why the bond market refuses to bounce you know yeah. just just picking up things like that and you can tell me if I'm wrong I, I just try to pick figure out what narratives are playing into the market. Well, I think you know part of that as well is is that you, know, you mentioned um, gold earlier and, and gold has performed remarkably well over the last few months, considering where real yields have gone. Yes, gold hasn't broke. You know, gold is only just below its all-time highs. It probably should be at 1,600, given its yeah. historical kind of relationship with real yields, real yields up, gold down. And, you know, we're talking about if we get a, a reflationary scenario, that should also put gold on the back foot. But it should already have been absolutely hammered. I think gold looks really, really interesting because if we follow this through, let's say we have this reflationary window, but then things start to slow down and we have all these issues. You're going to get more printing, fiat currency, QE. Suddenly that's that environment which over the last 10 years gold has really done well. It feels like gold is like a tightly coiled gazelle waiting to explode higher because everything's been against it for the last few months. Eventually, that will turn and, you know, I'm guessing 2,500 one day on gold. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I mean, I feel like it's got to happen when you think about that how many you know how many foreign sellers of u.s treasuries there have been you know and and what they're probably doing is you know as, we, as we've read central banks have been buying gold broadly speaking for their balance sheet probably to replace the treasuries that they've sold so that's a really serious bid in the gold market i'm not saying that that's necessarily the story but you I mean you pointed out perfectly real rates went for a nosedive and gold stood 1900 bid like a rock so there is relative strength there for some reason for sure and when we talk about or when you talk and think about commodities, do you at this stage still prefer the commodities rather than the, the companies? Because it seems that this has been a story about, you know, unlike the 2000s, which was price and volume and commodity stocks went to the moon. This has been more about commodity price and problems and scarcity, you know, underinvestment. The commodity companies in general haven't really done as well as you might imagine for some of the moves in the commodities. Do you think this is still a story where we initially play still through the commodities themselves. And yes, there are some commodity companies that we probably like, but maybe it's still a commodity story rather than a a corporate story. Absolutely, Raj. This is, you know, the tightness stories are always a commodity story, right? Like it or not, when, when, when futures markets go steeply backwardated, when inventories get tight, it's always better to be long the commodity unless you're in a raging bull stock market, right? And now those two don't always take place. It happens sometimes, but that's definitely not the scenario that we're in right now. We're in a highly inflationary environment. The commodities are coming alive for a reason. And you've got the risk of the inflationary story causing higher yields, which is just going to weigh on, you know, stock indices, you know, first, it's going to weigh on tech and then work its way down. Um, but with that sort of you know backbone premise in mind, it's rather it's better to just take the equity risk out and just be long the commodity, right? I mean, um, my point being was um, oil just traded from seventy seven to ninety nine, so like a twenty percent move or something like that. And as it peaked at ninety three, oil stocks were off three, four, and five percent in the last five days while oil made that high. 
You know what I mean? So like if you had that right in the oil complex, but we're sitting here long XLE thinking that you were going to, you know, crush it with that move. Well, you didn't, you know, and so that's why being long the physical it, it, in tight markets, at least it's always the way to go unless the S&P is in like a parabolic mode for some reason, which is hard to find. And, and I think what sort of backs that your view there up as well is that, you know, obviously Australia has its own problems, but it, with high commodity prices, the Aussie dollar's really been struggling. So it's sort of, you know, what we saw again in the, the 2000s was commodities up, Aussie dollar up, exports loads of commodities. If it's a volume story, that supports the currency. It doesn't seem to have really been that same sense. So again, it feels that this is, you know, we're playing that scarcity story. And you just say uranium, that scarcity story there, where, you know, the doors are being slammed shut on the big users being able to get hold of this stuff because it's just not there. Yeah. 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 That's, how, that's how all that, you know, that's how it starts. That's how, you know, the price goes parabolic sometimes in certain commodities. You know, you've seen natural gas go parabolic three or four times in our lifetimes now, right? Um, you know, it seems like uranium is set up to do the very same thing. And it's fun being long commodities trading to their all-time highs. That That's for sure. It's fun if you can also be long them on a futures market rather than an ETF basis, you know, just as an aside, because the futures markets are so much more efficient than the ETFs are. And the ETFs have gotten better. Um, but a lot of times you're still missing a lot of the bang for the buck. Um, I know USO didn't, keep up with oil on the last move either you know so that's just something to think about and why is that is that because the you know the way that they embed futures and roll them there's a cost there's a carry cost that are involved in the etfs compared to picking the right spot in the futures market presumably you when you're looking at these you go i want to be that month in whatever oil it might not be the front month rolled it might be four or five months out or something like that Right, exactly. The ETFs, and especially since, you know, they had that issue when oil contracts went negative, um, you know, USO, the contract had that issue, uh, excuse me, USO, the ETF had that issue um, because they were buried in a lot of front month exposure. So what they did since that episode is bump their risk out to like second, third and fourth month on the calendar. So if you're in those, then you're still dramatically underperforming the front month. You know, and it's just basically a, a fact of life now that that, you know, the ETFs are not going to keep up because they're going to be in second, third and fourth month. But at the same time, you don't have the same downside risk with, you know, futures contracts trading zero and God knows where the ETF should be priced. And if people want out, I don't even know where to bid for it. You know, there's that kind of scenario. So they're re relieved of that, at least. <laughs> And, and just changing very slightly in terms of, of the asset class, going now to, to equities, because we've been talking about an, an environment where um, in 2022, tech stocks in particular struggled with this repricing on higher yields. There's, but there's a lot of people now in sort of moving into account, which is the dross got taken out. But if you're quality cash flow driven, and as long as yields only grind, as we were talking about at the very beginning, do you think that some of these tech stocks can still hold their own, the ones that, you know, you know, I think I'm not sure whether yourself talking about NVIDIA actually trading quite well, given what's happened over the last couple of quarters. It's had the chance to roll over and hasn't. So do you think quality tech is still valid here, even if we do see these yields edging higher? It's been the only game in town. You know, uh, Raj, I'm kind of obsessed with my uh, year to date leaderboard. And I have a, a basically a security created that is my own favorite eight or nine big tech stocks. Um, and they're the obvious ones, the FANG stocks, plus NVIDIA, Tesla, um, Intel, Microsoft, things like that. And that big tech index of mine has been the leader on the year, the entire year, 
right now like you said we're negotiating this ai religion that that we've you know stumbled upon and nvidia is the poster child for that for that stock as you said and we've we've observed not trading like a bubble name right it, it's going through record high prices on on blowout earnings and instead of reversing and dumping it's reversing pulling back into support and rallying again you know and that's not that's the sign of a stock whose rally is not over that means that there's money coming in on dips and the stock is still better to buy for the most part until things change. And for this year, it still looks like, you know, if I call up the charts of the eight or nine underlying stocks in my big tech index, I'm like, those charts are still constructive, you know. And when I look at, you know, the software ETF and I look at the cybersecurity ETF, I mean, those have all bottomed and are turning up and I can't get bearish in those sectors either. So, yeah, you know, I don't think basis where, you know, how hard tech got hit from last year which was that the year of that inflation trade where rates went higher, tech went lower, and commodity stocks went up. They're bargain basement prices, and if the economy can muster higher yields, then those stocks will survive again. You know, and, and, and so that's kind of the back and forth that I see it. And I'm not a tech expert by any means, but I do see merit in the trends, in the way the stocks are behaving, in price action and things like that. Those are the things that I kind of count on as an S&P bull. I kind of count on those stocks to be able to weather, like you said, this non-volatile bond storm right now, right? If, if it gets really hectic and the bond market starts cratering, I'll change my view. But right now I'm long tech. You know, I try to buy, I waited for NVIDIA to top out. I let the queues back off and then I bought the dip. Um, it's not paying me at all right now, but at the same time, it's, it's not hurting me. And I like the idea that everybody's throwing rocks at the idea of being long tech right now. And, and when you're and sort of thinking about this sort of thing, I know you've alluded to it um, in our conversation so far, but if on your dashboard, et cetera, what are, the, what are the, the red flags for you? You talked about things like a surge in yield, but is there anything that you look at that you go, okay, I've got to watch this now because that could lead to a, a surge in yield, you know, or that could lead to you know, a surge in volatility, notwithstanding the unknowns like the banks blowing up again or something like that. What are the things that you're kind of really watching for? Yeah, you know, I'm 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 still on the lookout for a blowout inflation number like like above expectations. You know, I still think that that is coming and I'm not sure how or when, but it, you know, somewhere along this energy rally it seems like, you know, the CPI data has been lagging. So I look for that. I look for there to be a total, you know, come to Jesus moment where somehow a CPI number comes, seems like it's more in line with reality, right? We know that real inflation, obviously much worse than the headline number that we're looking at, and it just keeps getting worse. So kind of, I kind of look for that to be persistent. I guess I'm on the lookout for, you know, financial institution, not lookout, but I, I do fear because the market will fear financial institution blowups, but you know, Raj, that's like that plays right into scenario. When I hear that, all I can hope is that I'm kind of flat stocks when the VIX is trading thirty, because that's when I want to buy everything, you know. And and so that's how uh, that that's how I kind of try to get ahead of things like that if I see something bubbling up. But otherwise, you know, it's uh, having those things kind of have they have to be put off to one side. Otherwise, you know, you talk yourself out of participating in a bull market rally. And those aren't things that I like to miss because they don't come around all that often, you know, and I feel like we're still in the middle of one now. So that's how I'm positioned. And it feels like within that, 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 you know, when we say the Fed, the Fed seems to have not necessarily got our backs, but they keep on doing things which is sort of 
we don't want volatility in there. So they might, want, they might be happy to see higher yields as long as we talked about earlier, those yields go higher without lots of bond volatility. And as long as we can keep a relative cap on equity volatility. It seems that they've got all these tools now, repo, reverse repo, special back, backstops for small banks. It almost seems like for every scenario, there is a way that they can say, okay, we're not going to allow this volatility to get out of hand because we just don't want deleveraging type scenarios. It seems that we need something really, really quite dramatic to get proper red flags being put up a, a really big flagpole. I love that observation, Raj, because when I read on Twitter that the Fed has lost control, I'm like, are you kidding me? Like, the Fed is is the best party that there is at managing expectations in financial markets, if you ask me. Now, we don't always like the way they do it, but if you ask me, they always manage to manage expectations to a place where they can get away with doing things like they are now, raising rates, which otherwise would be negative for the markets. Right. But but they they kind of massage it in a way with, you know, with language, with, you know, and, and then, like you said, besides aside from the language, they now have like eight gigantic financial tools in their toolbox through Sunday that they can tweak here and tweak there that kind of, you know, keep keep Humpty Dumpty from coming apart. Right. Quite honestly. So when you have those the ability to, you know, intervene in the bond markets in however form you like and set expectations for your next interest rate move. You're never out of control, right? You've always got you can maybe maybe you can cause a bit of a spill or a de-risking or something like that, but you can always reset expectations to give investors confidence again. Like we've seen it a thousand times in in our career, where you know you're literally watching a sell-off, waiting for the Fed headline to say, you know, okay, we're drawing the line in the sand, so you either cover your short or you know go from flat to really long you know, in your, in your first move. So, yeah, I mean, I think, I think that, you know, watching them is important and that's why I don't get into predicting what's going to go on in an FOMC meeting. I mean, I'm not nearly smart enough to do that. I just kind of sit back, listen, watch the market behavior and decide where I want to be after that, you know? So yeah, I mean, the Fed, the Fed is, is key to watch. And like you said, without, a natural tsunami in the bond market, like a real natural one, like, oh my God, CPI was expected three and a half, it printed five, you know, you know, bonds offered into the basement, rates are flying high. Like in, in the absence of that, you know, the Fed has got everything under control, whether I like it or not. And, and is maybe one of the things sort of just, again, slightly changing it um, into, well, not an asset, but the dollar. Is, is that one of those brilliantly tribal stories. You're either a dollar bull and it's going to the moon, milkshake theory, <laughs> or it's going to collapse since the end of the USA. And obviously, I would say that that's people getting um, caught up in the relevance of the dollar, not the level of the dollar, which is a completely different thing. Yeah. But is the dollar one of those things which could come from left field? Because it could be, you know, ultimately, yes, the Fed and the Treasury can control or try and control it but china could just go oh it's really bad here we're going to do a mini devalue we're at 7.3 we're going to eight overnight i mean they're not you know but they won't probably do that but point being is that the is the dollar and particularly a dollar surge a disorderly dollar surge one of those things that we probably need to hedge for because it's the unknown that could be beyond the short-term control of the fed Yes, yes and no, Raj. So I'm, 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 I see your point entirely. Um, 
And I, I should preface this also by I don't ever put on dollar risk anymore. I just haven't traded the dollar. I use the dollar as a speedometer on my own risk in the equity markets and things like that. And I, I use that to sort of be a gauge to tell me what else is going on in the world. So without having without knowing that I don't have a dollar at risk in the dollar, um, I kind of sit back and I watch the existential argument between, you know, the dollar will always be the reserve currency and the dollar is turning to dust argument, right? I think that I lie somewhere in the middle, probably closer, honestly, to um, Brent Donnelly's milkshake theory, you know, and I just listened to him go through it again at the 2023 Precious Metals. Yes, Brent Johnson. Brent Johnson. Brent uh, Brent Donnelly's also in FX, but Brent Johnson. Excuse me. Yes, no brain fart there. Brent Johnson, excuse me. Thank you for that correction. Yeah, Brent is another good friend of mine, and I just pictured their name. They're both the Irish names next to each other, so they kind of mesh for me. Um, So Brent Johnson, who just went over the milkshake theory again at the Precious Metal Summit, I understand that better now, having heard a more refreshed view of it. And that's the way the dollar is trading at the moment. You know what I mean? And I'm very... You have to make, like you said, you have to make the distinction between purchasing power strength and trading strength, right? Every paper currency on the globe is losing purchasing power based on what their central banks are doing, generally speaking. Um, And, you know, then you go back to seeing which way their currencies are trading. So right now we're in that kind of strong dollar period where technically the dollar index looks good versus other currencies. So it's kind of remaining bid. You're probably getting some CTA funds come in and buy it and get long, you know, thinking that the higher trend will continue. Man, for me, though, I don't see it as a a sort of destructive force in the market. Like, you know, okay, so the dollar gets strong and maybe your exporters suffer this and that and there are issues like that. But I don't see that as a... Uh, a derailing force necessarily what i do see it as unfortunately is a bit of a headwind for commodities right so that's where i play it into my scenario a strong dollar and i've got to be looking at my commodity risk saying man i make it shit canned any minute right everybody might just turn and sell this commodity because the dollar is raging so i price it in like that but then i have to consider that we have seen years where the dollar has gone up and commodities have gone up you know, and that's not always the case. Um, and and you can still say the headwind was there. The commodities might have gone on further, but at least it's not a guaranteed one-to-one correlation. You know, where you have to say, okay, dollar ticking higher means I need to sell my commodities. So that's how my approach on the dollar is. Whether um, that's a great answer to your question or not, and I'm sorry if it's not. No, it, it is no, it, it is because I mean, again, you touched on something we talked about earlier, which is that you know the classic used to, the classic relationship used to always be dollar up and emerging markets and commodities down. But again, since COVID, we've seen this all over the shop, and as you just pointed out, we've seen periods where the dollar's gone up and commodities have gone up. And I think it's another indication, just like where gold is versus real yields, that. Something has changed. This time is different. I know you're not allowed to use that phrase, but at least in the short term, something is is unusual, even if it's not different. And some of the relationships, you know, we shouldn't be wedded to our tribal relationships. We should, as you probably do, trade the trade the pattern, trade the direction. And if the the, if the story of the relationship's broken down, the question is, okay, why? Let's try and interpret that, and maybe it stays broken for a, a, a significant while. Yeah, you know, broken is a word, a good word, a little bit for for markets this year. If you're expecting to ride trends into the sunset and make money, right? Like this year, I've been calling, um, I've been calling it a year of nonlinear chaos, 
And that really feeds into, you know, the, the curve being buried at, you know, minus 100 basis points, call it or something like that. What does that mean? That means that there's going to be an economic snowball coming through your window when you wake up in the morning and you just never know when. Right. So that that has been, you know, the sort of idea where I'm usually looking for markets to trend to this year. I've had to change my style, literally, Raj, to way more hit and run like, oh, OK, we made 10 percent in this sector. That was it. Right. Not not this sector is going to take us to, you know, to pay dirt on the year. It's just that was the trade and it's over and I should get out because I know that the minute that I think that it's going perfectly, here comes the snowball through the window, everybody going the other way in my trade. And, you know, I want to be out. So that that has really, really played into trading style and how that's changed this year, I think, is part of, you know, a result of the curve being buried as a factor of how the economy is. And so that's how that all plays in, which I think is relevant. I think that that phrase hit and run, one I've used myself before, I think is it's probably exactly right, which is, you know, hit and run being uh, it's an uncertain environment. We have to probably look at our screens a bit more. It's not a case of buy and hold anything. And, right. and if, you know, it's in some ways, it's, you know, that era that we had from 1994, maybe 1997 to COVID was yields went, or interest rates went up, then they fell over, came down, then they went up beautiful waves. Prior to that, because everyone says, oh, the Fed should be doing, you know, trending. Prior to that, they were up, they were down, they were up a bit, they were down a bit. They went all over the place. Yeah. We're probably going to be like that. Volatility of policy and therefore interest rates, obviously, with that. Yeah, I mean, look at look at the trades while while we've seen rates rising, Raj. Like you just defined it. Like look, like all of the trades have worked, right? While we've seen rates rising, you could have been riding tech long for a bit. You could have been riding energy long for a bit. You could have been riding home builders long for a bit while rates were rising. Right? Like the trades work, they just don't go on forever, right? All excuse me, the home builder trade has kind of ended for the short term. Uh, the tech trade has ended for the short term. Right now, the energy trade is in motion. But that's a classic example of like hot potato to hot potato. Like this one's working now and that one's not, you know? So it's like, it's really, really difficult, man. There has been no continuity of move at, to, to speak of this year. And, but that's, that's rotation. And rotation isn't yeah. liquidation. That's normally rotation is a recipe for sideways to maybe slightly grinding higher markets, but it's not... That's not the big bear market that, that people are, a lot of people are predicting, that binary sense. Hell no. Hell no. It's really fun to trade, though. <laughs> so, um, so just thinking now, just fi final sort of views is that, you know, we're coming, you know, the next three months, there's always that sort of, you know, people talk Santa rallies, maybe, you know, it, it's, it just feels like we have to be, it sounds like where you're thinking as well is that we just have to be careful of that the narrative that we have, whether it be the bullish, bullish narrative or the bearish, bearish narrative, actually what we need to be is somewhere in the middle and maybe ping between the two, because it sounds like the market might spend the next six months going, oh, recession, oh, actually, reflation, oh, recession. And that's your hit and run type strategy. It could do like, I, like, you know, without any without much of an expectation for the S&P this year because of that, you know, very reason. You know, the market's not doing too bad, up like 15% or so for the stock market with, sec you know, some sectors outperforming, some sectors underperforming. But heading, heading into the end of the year, you know, I'm, I'm like you say, for the next three month time period, it's going to be that toggle, right? It's going to be the give and take of the economic story that tells the story that you said, right? Either inflation, reflation, and how's the stock market going to react? 
it's probably going to still do the same whole lot of nothing, right? Up 10 basis points to close out the year, 20 basis points. If it closed out the year right here, I wouldn't be shocked. Maybe we see the jaws close a little bit, Raj, if rates uh, where, where maybe tech performance backs off and the underperformers like gold miners and industrial miners and energy pick up a little bit. And uh, maybe that kind of narrows that horse race gap into the end of the year. But you know, outside of, like you say, something like a bank blow up or something unforeseen like that, maybe, maybe, God forbid, a, a outrageously out of t- uh, outperforming inflation number, you know, it's going to be a, a, a snowball fight bar crawl of a grind in the S&P, right? So if you have that idea, you know, you're going to pick your individual sectors that work. When you earn some money in those sectors, you're going to have to bail out and find the next thing that goes because it's been really, really tough to stay in one thing. And I guess if people are, you know, nervous about this uncertainty, then in a safe money market fund, you've got a very high hurdle rate of four or five percent anyway. Beautiful. I mean, I, I'm in touch with a, my, a lot of my consulting clients, Roger, so happy to have a slug of their cash sitting in two year at five percent that they can't get the smile off their face. Quite honestly, after the year, you know, the years that we've had with T-bills pinned at zero this is like, okay, let's put our feet up on the desk and enjoy this for a couple of months or years if we can, right? Why not? Absolutely. Fortunately, the days of chasing bonds for capital returns rather than equities hopefully are now over. Yeah, I would say so, right? I would say so. That was not fun chasing rates to zero and beyond. Brilliant. Well, um, Tony, thank you very much for your time. Thanks for, for kind of going through the sort of nuts and bolts of it and, and this you know, fascinating era that we're in and you know the next couple of months could be as you say a really really interesting really interesting period for trading i think um thank you very much for your time it's been great to speak to you Raj. you're one of the few people that may have more energy about markets than i do that was an absolutely fantastically led conversation with some great questions thank you so much for having me on thank you. cheers cheers 